0: We will actually be finishing up our series on the attributes of God, and it's a little sad for me, I must admit. But if you would, uh, please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 48, Isaiah 48, we'll be reading Isaiah 48, verse 11, verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? In my glory, I will not give to another. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, Our prayer for the second hour this morning and for the rest of our lives is that you would be glorified, that we would understand your glory, your beauty, and your perfection, that you would cause us to act according to it. Lord, we're thankful for the picture of yourself that you give to us in your word. Help us to know you as you want us to to know you, as you want to be known. Help us to have an accurate picture of who you are, as God, a very God, God above all other gods, the true one and only God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of the hobbies that Olivia and I used to have before we had small children is to go hiking. Hiking. Olivia and I used to go hiking, and one time we heard about this hiking trail, a beautiful trail here in Southern California that ended in a waterfall, and so we thought, can it be? So we went on this hiking trail, it's called Chantry Flats, some of you know it, perhaps. And so excitedly we set out to hike Chantry Flats and to behold this wonderful waterfall at the end of the trail, and we finally got to the end of the trail, getting over the threshold to the flat area above we come out and we see the overhanging cliff and we see sputtering down the side of the mountain a trickle of a waterfall (laughs) kind of like a leaking ceiling (laughs) okay not that bad a dripping faucet and so we get up there and I think to myself that's it that's it well another time We went hiking on the Big Island in Hawaii, a trail called ending in a a waterfall called Akaka Falls. We hike this trail, and we get to the end of the trail, and we behold this amazing waterfall. And I even included a picture of it here just to illustrate the difference. There's a rainbow at the bottom of Akaka Falls. (laughs) And when we saw this waterfall, I thought, now that's a waterfall that is beautiful, that is glorious. We all know glory when we see it. We all know beauty when we see it. We all have a deep abiding sense of what is beautiful and what is glorious. And we know when something falls short of true beauty and true glory. For instance, you go to Wendy's. Sorry if you like Wendy's. And you look at their burger, you think, that's it? And then you go to In-N-Out, and you look at their burger, and you say, that's beautiful. That is glorious. Or let's say you just happen to be watching a USC basketball game, and you look at them, and you say the, the way the red and the yellow, they just clash. <laughs> that's not beautiful. And then you go to a UCLA basketball game and you see the the beautiful baby blue powder mixed in with the gold and the fluidity of the motion offense, even if their defense is horrible, and you think, now that is beautiful. That is glorious. We all have a deep, abiding sense of what is glorious, what is beautiful. Well, today, regrettably, we arrive... For a final session on the attributes of God, and if we could, maybe Nate, you'll have to help me to advance the slide. Well, we uh, arrive at our final study, our final session on the attributes of God. Over the past six months, we have studied 22 attributes of God, and I admit as I was putting this slide together, sat back and a little trickle of a tear came down the side of my face. I thought, this is like watching your child grow up. You know, they grow up so quickly. <laughs> I can't believe that we've actually covered all of these attributes of God over the past six months, and now we've finally come to the end. We have seen over the past six months the incommunicable attributes of God, the communicable attributes of God, broken down into the intellectual, the sovereign, and the moral attributes of God. And today we finally arrive to our final session on the attributes of God, the attributes which we will call the summary attributes the attributes of perfection, beauty, and glory. Now, perfection, beauty, and glory are called summary attributes because they summarize the rest of God's attributes. They are descriptive of all of God's attributes. So as an illustration, let's take all the attributes of God, and let's put them in the center. And we'll put them in this red dot, this red circle. At the center of this circle represents all of the attributes that we have talked about over the past six months. In all of God's attributes, God is perfect. In all of God's attributes, God is beautiful. And in all of God's attributes, God is glorious. And so what we mean when we say that these are summary attributes is you could think about it like this. Perfection surrounds the attributes of God. God is perfect in his independence. God is perfect in his immutability. God is perfect in his omnipresence. God is perfect in his eternity. God is perfect in his love, and so on and so forth. You could do the same with beauty. God is beautiful in his independence. God is beautiful in his immutability. God is beautiful in his omnipresence, and so on and so forth. And you could do the same with glory. God is glorious in his independence. God is glorious in his immutability. God is glorious in his omnipresence. God is glorious in his eternity, and so on and so forth. That is why these are called the summary attributes of God. Because these three attributes describe all of the other attributes of God. So let's start first with perfection, the perfection of God. Grudem defines God's perfection as, God's perfection means that God completely possesses all excellent qualities and lacks no part of any qualities that would be desirable for him. In all of God's attributes, he is perfect. God lacks nothing. We cannot improve upon God's attributes. God possesses everything that God is meant to possess. God needs nothing more. Matthew 5.48 says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God completely owns every attribute in all its fullness in such a way that he is completely and totally excellent. There's nothing that we can do to improve upon God. Nothing should be added to God's attributes and nothing should be taken away from God's attributes. They are complete as they are. God himself is perfect and everything he does is perfect. The works of God are perfect. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. God's work is perfect. Furthermore, God's ways are perfect. David says of God in Psalm 18, verse 30, his way is perfect. The ways of God are perfect. Whatever he does is perfect. And finally, whatever God says is perfect. God's word is perfect. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now let's move on to the beauty of God. Grudem defines the beauty of God as that attribute of God whereby he is the sum of all desirable qualities. Beauty is loveliness or desirability. Again, beauty defines all of God's attributes, and this is why we call it a summary attribute. Jonathan Edwards is perhaps America's most famous theologian, which is interesting because actually this is completely as a side note, but when Jonathan Edwards lived, he was not American because America didn't exist. But anyway, he is America's most famous theologian. We claim him as our own. Well, he is most famous for preaching what? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's what everybody thinks of when they think of Jonathan Edwards. And sadly so, because actually if you study Edwards, he is called the theologian of God's beauty, the theologian of beauty, because Edwards saw so much of his theology through the lens of the beauty of God. And he, perhaps more than any other theologian, developed the idea that God is beautiful. Edwards called God primary beauty, primary beauty. All other things have secondary beauty, the beauty of everything and anything else in our world, in our galaxy, in our universe that has beauty, only has beauty because it participates in the beauty of God. It only has beauty because it participates in primary beauty. It shares God's beauty. So Edwards described the primary beauty of God, which is broken down into intrinsic and extrinsic beauty, and then secondary beauty. So let's look first at primary beauty, and we'll look first at intrinsic beauty. Intrinsic beauty, which you could think of as objective beauty, is the first aspect of primary beauty. And there are several Hebrew words for this kind of beauty. For instance, Isaiah thirty-three seventeen: your eyes will see the king in his beauty. And here, beauty means excellence, inherent excellence you will see the king in his objective, inherent, intrinsic excellence. Psalm 50, verse 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. And here, beauty means attractiveness or desirability. God is objectively desirable. Now, as you can tell, I intend to argue, and not just me, but Edwards, intends to argue that beauty has an objective component to it. You've heard it said that beauty lies in the eye of the beholder, and that is partly true, and we'll actually talk about that in a second. But even more than that, beauty has an objective component to it. We don't just make up beauty when we behold things. We acknowledge beauty. We discover beauty. We recognize beauty. We perceive beauty. Beauty is an adjective. It is a property. It is an attribute of God. Just like wisdom or power or omniscience, God objectively is beautiful. Now, again, instinctively, we understand the objective nature of beauty. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon, opens their door, steps out onto the side of the cliff and says, oh, the sight of that just makes me want to vomit. Nobody does that. Nobody sees a rainbow and says, ugh, oh, that color scheme just clashes. It just doesn't go together. Nobody does that. Objectively, we understand beauty. Beauty is an objective truth. But this begs the question, what makes God objectively beautiful? Now, I admit this is a difficult question, and I'm glad that greater men than I, namely Edwards and others, have dealt with this question, so I'll be riding on their coattails. But the one aspect of God's beauty that makes it objectively true is God's attributes have perfect, constant harmony. That's what makes them objectively true. The beauty of God is the way in which all of his attributes fit together with one another. They relate to one another. God's attributes have symmetry and proportion. They ebb and flow in such a way together so as to make them objectively beautiful. Piper says, it is the peculiar proportionality and interplay and harmony of all God's attributes that constitutes God's beauty and makes him the foundation of all the beauty in the world. Let me give you an example of this. When we see individual colors, we accept them for what they are. Red, green, brown, black, yellow, orange, pink. We say, okay, these are colors. I see them objectively. But let's say you put the colors together in a painting. And the shade of this color just accentuates the boldness of that color. Or this color just contrasts perfectly with that color. Or this interplay is so perfectly done that we see the texture of the painting glowing out through the colors which meet our eyes. And then we say, ah, the way in which these colors fit together is beautiful. The way in which these colors relate to one another is beautiful. There is harmony in this painting. There is symmetry in this painting. There is proportionality in this painting, and that's what makes it objectively beautiful. Likewise, the attributes of God derive their beauty from their relationship to one another. A.W. Pink says, The fairest face on earth, with the most comely features, would soon become ugly and unsightly if one member continued growing, while others remained undeveloped. Beauty is primarily a matter of proportion. Thus it is with the word of God. Its beauty and blessedness are best perceived when its manifold wisdom is exhibited in its true proportions. There is no conflict in God. There is only symmetry. There is no contradiction in God. There is only harmony. There is no dissonance in God. There is only symphony. Now let's move on to extrinsic beauty, also called aesthetic beauty. This refers to the subjective aspect of God's beauty. We have to see that there is a subjective aspect to the beauty of God. This is beauty lying in the eye of the beholder. Now this means we must see God's attributes not only as moral But as positively beautiful. We must worship God not just because he is so holy or so transcendent or so powerful. We worship God because he is beautiful, because he is desirable. All of God's attributes are not just perfect, they are beautiful, they are desirable. They are lovely. God himself is a beautiful God. Psalm 27 verse 4 is where we see this word being used. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. Now in this verse, the word beauty and to behold the beauty means to have pleasure in the perception, not just to perceive something, not just to see it, but as you see it, as you perceive it, to enjoy it, to have pleasure in it, to see it as excellent, to see it as attractive. It's an end in itself. You're not viewing something to gain something else. You're viewing it because it is enjoyable in and of itself. It is an end in and of itself. That's what this verse is talking about. To enjoy God as an end in himself. Let me illustrate this. In college, I majored in English Lit. Actually, I take that back. I majored in British Lit, which is true English Lit. So, <laughs> I actually majored in 17th century British Lit, which is true English Lit. So, anyway. Not American. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I studied... British Lit, in college, and I had the chance to live in England for a summer. And I studied Shakespeare while I was in England, and one of our assignments was actually to go to the British Museum of Art, which is apparently one of the top five museums in the world, and to go and study paintings which were painted during the time of Shakespeare so that we could learn about the culture, the art, the history of the time period of Shakespeare. And so I had to go to this museum, and we would give them a list of paintings to view and to study, and we would have to go and study them, read about them, and then write essays about them. So in a sense, I went to see these paintings to get a grade. These paintings were a means to an end. And the end was to get an A in my class. The paintings were not an and of themselves. They were a means to an end. But now I've grown to love art. I've grown to appreciate art. Now I go to museums not just to get an A, but to enjoy the paintings themselves. Now I go to museums not as a means to an end, but to view art as the end in and of itself, to have pleasure in the perception, to enjoy God, Not as a means to an end, but to enjoy the beauty of God as an end in and of itself. That's primary beauty, so let's move on to secondary beauty, which is the display of God's beauty. Edwards talked about secondary beauty, which are the echoes of God's beauty in everything in creation that is beautiful. And Edwards identified two primary ways in which secondary beauty shines, creation and salvation. The beauty of God is apparent in creation. Job 26.13, by his breath, the heavens gained their beauty. Job 31.26, I beheld the sun when it shone or the moon walking in beauty. Even mankind is considered beautiful. Beautiful. Psalm 8, verse 5, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and beauty. We echo the beauty of God, the primary beauty. Edward says, The beauties of nature are really emanations or shadows of the excellencies of the Son of God, so that When we are delighted with flowery meadows and gentle breezes of wind, we may consider that we see only the emanations of the sweet benevolence of Jesus Christ. When we behold the fragrant rose and lily, we see his love and purity. So the green trees and fields and singing of birds are the emanations of his infinite joy. The easiness and naturalness of trees and vines are shadows of his beauty and loveliness. The crystal rivers and murmuring streams are the footsteps of his favor, grace, and beauty. When we behold the light and brightness of the sun, the golden edges of an evening cloud, or the beauteous bow, we behold the outlines of his glory. I substituted the word there, outlines. The original word was adumbrations. I thought it was better to substitute outlines. We behold the outlines of his glory and goodness and in the blue sky of his mildness and gentleness. Everything that we see in creation, everything that we see in our world that is beautiful, echoes the beauty of God. It emanates the beauty of God. Edwards saw all of creation in light of God's beauty, but he also saw all of redemption in light of God's beauty. In fact, Edwards argued that redemption and salvation most specifically displays the beauty of God. And in a nutshell, he redefined all the terms that we use in salvation in terms of beauty. Joy is the personal experience of beauty. The soul is the organ by which beauty is apprehended and enjoyed. So the eyes are the physical organ by which we perceive physical beauty, but the soul is the organ by which we perceive spiritual beauty. But of course, that's a problem for us. Because as fallen man, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We need to be born again. We need to be regenerated. As fallen man, we are blind to spiritual beauty, so we must be given new eyes. And so, new birth, regeneration, is the decisive awakening to beauty. Being born again is what allows us to perceive spiritual beauty. Sin is false beauty. It is beauty, it is... Ugliness cloaked as attractiveness. Sanctification is becoming more beautiful, becoming more like God, the beautiful one. And heaven is the full experience of beauty. Isaiah thirty-three seventeen 17 says, Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. Just one brief point of application. Why do we need the beauty of God? We need the beauty of God because we need beauty when we suffer. We need beauty when we suffer. Gazing on the beauty of God is not just mysticism or escapism. Maybe it is to some. But there's something deeper in this. Look at the context of Psalm 27, verse 4. Psalm 27, verse 3 says... Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. David is going through a time of suffering, of trial. There were people who are trying to kill him. So what does he do? He looks at the beauty of God. Verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Beauty is one of the answers to suffering. Now you actually hear this all the time, perhaps without even knowing it. Sometimes people go through a difficult time, and they say, you know what I did? I just listened to some music, and it calmed me down. Or I hear this a lot talking to my patients who are depressed. They say, actually a lot of them say, I just want to go to the beach. And I just want to hear the waves crashing. I just want to see the beauty of the beach. Because it calms me down. Why are they saying that? Because beauty has a calming effect on the soul. When things are disordered in our life, we yearn for order. When things have disharmony in our life, we yearn for harmony. When things are out of place in our life, we yearn for proportion. When things have dissonance, we long for symphony. When things are ugly in life, we long for beauty. Beauty is one of the answers to suffering. Let's move on to the glory of God, which is our final attribute in this series. MacArthur and Mayhew define the glory of God as God's glory refers to the consummate beauty and the totality of his perfections. It is his supreme significance and splendor. Now, I like how MacArthur and Mayhew define the glory of God because it points out three things. First, they say consummate and totality because remember, the glory of God is a summary attribute of God. All of God's attributes are glorious. God himself is glorious. Glory surrounds the attributes of God. But they also use these two words, significance and splendor. We'll take each of these separately as God's intrinsic glory, which is his significance, and God's extrinsic glory, which is his splendor. Let's look at intrinsic glory first. Intrinsic glory is what MacArthur and Mayhew refer to when they talk about God's significance. Now, I thought about this because we use, we Christians, we believers, use the word glorious all the time. It is a part of our Christian vocabulary. We say, praise God, glory to God, that burger is glorious, and we say all this, it's a part of of our vocabulary. But actually, it's one of the most... Difficult words to explain from the Bible. So in order to understand this, we have to look at the Hebrew and Greek words. The principal word for the glory, for glory in Hebrew is kavod. It literally means to be weighty or heavy, to be weighed down. It has the idea that the person is heavy with position or power or rank or wealth it expresses value or worth in the new testament the greek word is doxa it carries a similar idea it was used to signify honor and reputation so in both of these words the picture is of a scale and one side of the scale is being weighed down with precious jewels precious metals gold silver jewels precious stones it is weighed down it is weighty it is heavy because it is significant. We actually have semblances of the way that we use this word today. For instance, in the military, whenever you see a very important soldier or a decorated soldier or a decorated general, and they wear wear their uniform, what do you see on their uniform? Pins, purple hearts, medals, weights. And you can tell the significance of this soldier or this general by how many weights they have on their uniform. You say, this is a weighty soldier. This is a significant soldier. This is a glorious soldier. He is weighed down with significance. That's why C.S. Lewis wrote his book entitled The Weight of Glory. That which is glorious has weight, it has value, it has significance. So when we say that God is glorious, we mean that God is valuable. God is significant. God has great worth. God is weighed down with glory. Kavod is contrasted to things which are light and worthless. The opposite of weightiness is lightness. In the ancient days, if you were trying to pay for something in the marketplace and you placed feathers on the scale and it did not tip the scale, they would not sell you things. It is light. It is of little value, of little worth. This is why Daniel tells Belshazzar in the famous passage of the writing on the wall, Daniel 5.27, you have been weighed and found wanting. God tells this pagan king, you may think you're glorious. You may think you are significant. You may think that your kingdom has value and power and weightiness, but you have been weighed in comparison with my glory and found wanting. You are light, Belshazzar. You are light of little value, of little worth. Robert Raymond says, God's glory is the sum total of all of his attributes as well as any one of his attributes. God's glory is simply the inescapable weight of the sheer intrinsic godness of God, inherent in the attributes essential to him as the deity. For the creature, to deny to him any one of his attributes is to attack the very glory of God and to deny him that without which he would no longer be God. Or... To ascribe to him any attribute which he himself does not expressly claim to have is again to represent him as something less than he is and thus to attack his glory. For this reason, it is imperative to listen carefully to God's description of himself in scripture. So where have we seen God's glory, brothers and sisters? In the last six weeks, six months of our study. All of the attributes of God make up the glory of God, the value of God, the worth of God, the significance of God. Over the past six months, we have been beholding the glory of God. This is God's intrinsic glory, intrinsic value, that which he has had from eternity past and that which he will have to eternity future. This is the glory that God himself enjoyed within the Trinity, even before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays in John 17, 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world began. Before humans, before the earth, before angels, before demons, before anything, God had glory. God had intrinsic worth. Even before there was anybody around or anything around to appreciate that glory, God was still glorious. God still had intrinsic value. God still had intrinsic worth. From eternity past to eternity future, God will forever be valuable. God will forever be significant. God will forever be glorious. But there's a second kind of glory, which we'll call extrinsic glory. The Hebrew word kavod also speaks of the manifestation of light by which God revealed himself, whether in the lightning flash or the blinding splendor. The second kind of glory is God's communication of his glory to us. Grudem says this is the visible manifestation of the excellence of God's character. This is the kind of glory that we can see and appreciate. Now, this is hard to grasp, but the best illustration of this is what is called the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. Shekinah is a Hebrew word which refers to the presence, the presence of God. Shekinah means presence, and so Shekinah glory is the glory of God's presence. And you remember in the Old Testament many passages of the glory of God shining out in a visible light. Exodus 13, 21, God appeared in a pillar of fire. That's the glory of God that you're seeing. You remember Exodus sixteen ten, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Notice it does not say the Lord appeared in the cloud. It says the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Ezekiel 8, 2 describes God the Son, the appearance of fire, and from his loins and upward, the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. That's the extrinsic glory of God, the shining forth of God's glory. Now in the New Testament, as you know, for much of Christ's earthly ministry, he in a sense hid his glory. But there were passages which did reveal the extrinsic glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity. For instance, Christ peeled back the curtain in the transfiguration. Matthew 17, verse 5, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. What is shining forth? The extrinsic glory of Jesus Christ. And one day in heaven, we will behold the extrinsic glory forever and ever. Revelation 21:23. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, how do we glorify God? This is a very important question for us Christians, because it is our life's mission to glorify God. It is the church's mission and purpose to bring glory and worship to God. Well, John Frame says, Scripture calls on us to glorify God. In one sense, of course, we cannot increase God's glory. But when we speak truly of him and obey his word, we enhance his reputation on earth, and we ourselves become part of the created light by which people come to know God's presence. So Jesus says that his disciples are the light of the world, as he is. Our words and our lives bring praise to God, which shows his glory light to the world. To glorify God, then, is simply to obey him, and therefore to proclaim his greatness by our words and deeds. The glory of God is God's motivation for all things. We are predestined for God's glory, Ephesians 1. The universe was created for God's glory, Psalm 19. Human beings were created for God's glory, Isaiah 43. Salvation is given for God's glory, 1 John 2. Sanctification is achieved for God's glory, Psalm 23. Suffering is for God's glory, Philippians 1. Damnation of sinners is for God's glory, Romans 9. The return of Christ will be for God's glory, 2 Thessalonians 1. All things that happen, happen for God's glory. Romans 11, to 36. And the deepest motive in the heart of God is his own glory. Isaiah 48, 11, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. God's deepest motivation in his own heart is his own self-exaltation. It is to declare his significance, his worth, and his value to everybody and to everything. That is the deepest motivation in the heart of God. So in summary, perfection is the completeness of God's attributes. Beauty is the harmony and enjoyment of God's attributes. Glory is the worth and splendor of God's attributes. I'd like to close today with three brief points of application. First, the beauty and glory of God should humble us. The beauty and glory of God should humble us. We have learned a lot of theology over the past six months, And the tendency of our sinful hearts is to become proud. Because perhaps now we know a lot of terms that perhaps other Christians do not know. Or perhaps many other people do not know. But brethren, theology should not make us proud. Theology should humble us. A proud theologian is an oxymoron. If you're proud, you don't really know your theology. 1 Corinthians 8:1, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Brethren, theology shouldn't make us more proud. It should make us less proud. Because when we are proud, what are we really trying to do? Seek glory for ourselves. We are seeking to steal God's glory. But when we learn theology, That ought to drive us to give God's glory, not steal God's glory. The more we learn about God, the more humble we should become. The more we should become like John the Baptist, may he increase, may I decrease. Secondly, the beauty and glory of God should remind us of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the truest and fullest expression of beauty and glory. Isaiah 4, verse 2 says, In that day, the branch of the Lord, and that's Jesus. There's a reason, I did not capitalize that. That is capitalized in the translation. There's a reason why the word branch is capitalized, because Jesus is the branch of the Lord. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Jesus is the most beautiful, most glorious one. However, Isaiah 53, verse 2 tells us about Jesus. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus Christ, the most beautiful one, gave up his beauty so that we could become beautiful in him. The beauty and glory of God should remind us of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Lastly, the beauty and glory of God should cause us to worship. It should cause us to worship. Now, brothers and sisters, again, I hate to harp on this, but I think we need it. Personally, I need it. We have learned a lot of theology over the last six months. And the purpose of learning theology is not for the sake Of theology in and of itself. We have not just been learning theology, we have been learning about God. This is who God is. This is our God. This is the God of the Bible. As we go through all of these terms and all of these attributes and all these perfections and all these properties of God, we must not forget we are talking about God. We are learning about God. So as we study theology, as we study the attributes, this should drive us to worship. This should drive us to bend the knee, bring ourselves low, and worship and praise God for who he is. This is our God. Let us meet the God of our theology. So as we bring our series to a close, I leave us with the words of Isaiah 40, verse 9, right where we started. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Let's pray. Father who's in heaven, impress upon us who you are. Help us to behold you in all of your glory, in all of your splendor, in all of your perfection, and in all of your beauty. As we go out into the world this week to live as Christians, help us to be a light in the darkness so that we may be an extension of the light of the world, Jesus Christ so that we may be an extension of the Shekinah glory of God, a light which lights the light of men. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.